into your word tonight. Lord, we pray, let revelation knowledge flow freely, unchecked and uninterrupted by any satanic or demonic force. Father, I pray that you would speak to my vocal cords, think through my mind, none of me and all of you. We thank you, Lord, for <clears throat> the gifts of the Spirit being in operation, and we thank you for articulation of your hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Everyone in agreement did say, Amen. Let's make this confession of our faith. Say, Father, I've come to receive revelation wisdom and understanding from your holy word and I fully expect the Holy Spirit to bear witness with my spirit concerning revelation of the word and how to apply it in my life on a daily basis I'm a doer of the word and not a hearer only so therefore I'm a fruitful believer amen I want to call your attention to uh, what I define as four fathers that we see uh, really between uh, 1 Samuel and, and 2 Samuel since we are reading that this month. Amen. 1 Samuel, there's a, there's, because of this is Father's Day season, I did want to call your attention to, to some of the things that are actually indicated here within 1 Samuel uh, tonight. Um, Samuel is an interesting book because it does give us a little more mm, information in regards to these, these four gentlemen and their, their capacity to be a father, if you will. You see, first and foremost, in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 2 and verse, verse uh, chapter 2, let's just say it like that, you see Eli and his sons. You remember reading that? Mm -hmm. And Eli... I'm just asking the question. I mean, how do you remember reading that? Mm -hmm. Amen. So Eli has two sons. Hopnia and Phineas, right? And Phineas. And the Bible talks about them because their actions brought disgrace to the priesthood and they provoked God's anger. You remember that? One of the issues that Eli had was that his was found within his failure to discipline his sons. Now, interesting enough that God tells Eli that there's going to be judgment in regards to how you have lack or the lack thereof of the discipline of your children, your sons. They're grown at this point. And he actually gives this message to Samuel as well. You know, you remember we talked about on last week. When Samuel wakes up in the middle of the night thinking that he's heard Eli calling him when in reality he heard God calling him. Well, the word of the Lord that came to Samuel was that there's going to be judgment for Eli's house because of his lack of discipline of his two sons. His two sons he put in ministry and they were thieves and scoundrels in the ministry and he did not deal with that. Okay. The Bible tells us in Proverbs 22, train up a child in the way they should go, so when they are old, they will not depart from it. And I submit to you that Eli, they didn't, these sons didn't just become this way. They had been this way for a little while, if you will, and it must have been within his purview to discipline his children in regards to these areas of honor and respect for the house of God, and he didn't do so. And then the Bible tells us that the word of the Lord came to Samuel that not only would he... Oh, his sons died, but he would die. All of you all would die on the same day, and that's exactly what happened. So we see what a lack of discipline. See, one of the things we got to understand, particularly, I understand, you know, uh, the circumstance we have tonight, but with fathers, discipline is a part of what you're supposed to be doing. It's training them in the ammunition of the Lord. Now, you fast forward a couple years, I found it interesting, if you see in 1 Samuel chapter number 8, a similar situation with Samuel and his sons. Samuel goes on, and he has two sons, Joel and Abinadab, and he appoints them judges of Beersheba, and they succumb to bribery, pervert justice, and, begin, and, and personal gain portraying the principles that their father had embodied. So Samuel becomes the prophet, he becomes the judge, and then one day he says, all right, I want to put my sons in the ministry. And he puts them in the ministry and they start thieving and taking things from folks. And turn over there, if you will. First Samuel chapter number eight. 
Let's look at that. I say everybody, turn over there to 1 Samuel chapter number 8. Let's have a look. Everybody. 1 Samuel chapter number 8. This is Bible study, and that's what we're going to do. We're going to study the Bible. 1 Samuel chapter number 8, because you remember this. I mean, bless God, it's, it's, it's late in the uh, month. If you hadn't read this, then, you know. Now, I'm reading this out of the New Living Translation. <clears throat> Scripture says, verse number one, as Samuel grew up, he appointed his sons to be judges over Israel, Joel and Abinadab. Uh, his older sons had court in Beersheba, Beersheba, verse three, and they were not like their father. They were greedy for money. They accepted bribes and perverted justice. Now verse 4, finally all the elders of Israel met at Ramah to discuss the matter with Samuel. Verse 5, I love how this translation says it. Look, they told him, you old and your sons are not like you. Give us a king. So they begin to ask for a king as a direct result of the fact that his two sons did not have the same spirit that he had. Samuel had operated in honor for years, but for some reason or another, he wasn't acquainted with the character of his two sons. And he thought, maybe we just put them up in the ministry and this will still work. Samuel wants to pass the torch to his sons. Now, I've said to you before, and I've been authorized to be able to say this tonight, it's one of the reasons why, you know, when we see the passing of the torch, particularly where ministries are concerned, we got to be careful that we don't think that just because your kids or your kids that that's the one that God wants to appoint as the next pastor. Jot me down now. That's going on a lot in the body of Christ. Well, I got my sons here, my children. They think this is a family business. This is not how this works. God knows who's supposed to be next in line for that ministry for the next season and the next generation. And too many pastors are putting up their sons, and that's exactly what's happening, just like we see with Eli. Eli taught Samuel just perfectly. Now, ironically, Samuel takes the helm of the nation from, or the baton from Eli. He receives a level of fathership and mentorship because he grows up in the temple or in the tabernacle, in the setting uh, with Eli as a father figure. His parents, according to the scripture, only came to worship once a year. So he only saw his mother and his father once a year. So really, Eli becomes a father figure to him. And it is that one, the one that has the spirit of Eli, that becomes the successor, not the physical sons. Fast forward, Samuel in the same situation. Where do you think he learned this type of fathership? He learns it from his mentor, Eli. He has the same, same situation with his two sons. That they are not fit for ministry. This time, though, see, this, 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 this just like the people of God. See, you start messing around with the money in the church. This is where the deacons came up and said, look here. Look, you get, you get old, Doc, and your sons ain't like you. Now give us a king like everybody else, because clearly you don't know how to pass the torch or pass the baton. And one of the things you begin to see is that Samuel becomes to the first king, Saul, like Eli was to him. He becomes a mentor. And so if you fast forward through the scriptures, Samuel is heartbroken when Saul uh, has a failure at, in his leadership. The Bible even tells us that God has to say to Samuel, man, what you doing over here crying about Saul? Now, you got to imagine what's going on in regards to this, is that, is that Samuel sees Saul as the successor, as the one that will carry the torch. And when Saul begins to flake out, if you will, he sees it maybe as a possibility, as a, as a failure, a personal failure of his leadership as well. Because his sons didn't carry the torch, and, and, Saul, and Saul doesn't carry the torch. We have two fathers here. Two different issues, but yet similar issues. In both situations, we see the lack of discipline and training results in a leadership change. Do we see that? Fast forward a couple years in First uh, Samuel chapter number 16. Samuel is called of God to go to Jesse's house. He goes to Jesse's house looking for a king that looks like the king Saul. 
which the Bible says he's tall, he's handsome, he looks like a king. And that's not what David looks like. Tall. Now he's defined as being handsome, but he is not tall, perhaps. So that's not identified within the scriptures. But one of the things that always struck out to me, if you turn over to First uh, Samuel chapter number 16, the Bible tells us that God says to him, don't judge. He tells Samuel, don't judge the appearance of his height. Well, why does he say don't judge the appearance of his height? Because apparently he ain't going to be that, that tall of a man. At times, David is not a full-grown man. And, you know, there's nothing that says within the scripture per se that I'm aware of where it says that like Saul, he was a tall person. He says, just don't judge his height. Now, there's, that means there's, some, there's a blessing for short people. Amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. <laughs> don't limit yourself because of your height. Amen. God doesn't limit you just because you can't reach certain physical areas in life. All right. Now, notice it says, don't judge by his appearance, for I rejected him. The Lord does not see what man sees. People judge the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Now, one of the things I want to point out to you is that Samuel shows up at Jesse's house and says, God sent me to anoint one of your sons to be king. Jesse calls all the sons except one of them. And what kind of relationship do you think that he has with his son? David. I just, I, I don't know, but... This, this is one of the things that stick out to me that the prophet of God shows up at his house and he doesn't call his youngest son into the number. And one of the things we need to understand that maybe even as fathers we should not underestimate the value of our children. Just because, you know, this one acts like you and the other one doesn't, doesn't mean that that one's less valuable. You know what I mean? It's one of the things you see with Isaac to Esau. Isaac loves some Esau because Esau smells like the earth. He's, he sees himself in Esau. He has this agricultural type um, uh, personality. Likes working outside. He's a hunter. Man's man. But the other one, Jacob, you're like, you know, you, 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 you smart and all that. And you, you, you like, in our generation, it would be, you like reading the books. And, he, and Isaac's like, I, I really, I don't like that like and so he naturally loves Esau, and he's kind of dealing with Jacob. And this kind of relationship facilitates some of the issues that we saw back in Genesis. I don't know, but one of the things that, like I said, when I look at this, the Bible tells us that he called all his big and bad sons forward. And God rejected every last one of them. And then one day, and then as they were standing there, he said, you got another one? Because clearly, the Lord sent me here to anoint a son, and then Jesse looks at him and says, well, I got one more. I got the boy out there with the sheep. You know, he likes to sing, you know, play harps and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, I don't know. It might be a little soft. We got him out there watching the sheep right now. Call him in. And here comes Jesse. I mean, Jesse calls for David. Now, notice in verse number 12 how the Bible defines, because you know how I am. Let's look at how he is defined. The scripture indicates to us, so Jesse sent word, I'm reading this out of, uh, let me read this out of the New Living Translation, it says, so Jesse sent for him. He was dark and handsome with beautiful eyes. The New Living Translation says dark and handsome. King James uses the word ruddy. Ruddy does not mean little. Jesse had a ruddy son, which means he was dark it also means reddish in complexion or, or skin. The Amplified says, but Jesse sent word and brought him. Now he was a ruddy complexion, is what the Amplified defines it. Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 17, defines David again in verse 42 as having ruddy complexion out of the Amplified version of the Bible. Now, I don't know that he was a black man, but I do know he wasn't European white. We do know that. Because his mama, uh, his grandma was Ruth. Ruth was from Moabite. So she wasn't a Hebrew like the rest of them. And the scriptures tell us he was a ruddy man or reddish complexion, but it does say that he was a handsome man. So David must have looked different from the rest of them from being this reddish complexion skin that he had 
and he was the one that Jesse didn't call in first. Like I said, I don't know, but what kind of relationship do they have? This is father number three. Let's move forward just a little bit within our journey as well. Second Samuel chapter 13 talks about David and his sons. David and his sons. In Samuel 13, it talks about Absalom's revenge. Now, we understand that a lot of the rebellion that took place in regards to David and his house has a direct result of the sin that David committed. But there's a revenge. Absalom wants to have a revenge. He wants to take the kingdom by force. And David at one point in time becomes estranged from his own kingdom because of his son. Later on, we see the same situation with Abinadab. He wants to become king, and that's when we see the transfer from David to Solomon. So David doesn't have the best relationship with his sons either. There are things that we need to see and understand on as we're in this Father's Day season. I'll say again, I know the situation. Five lessons that we need to understand is that Eli <clears throat> teaches that God will not overlook or overlook the neglect of discipline of your children. Every man is responsible for the house that God has put him in charge of. Every child that he has seed. Number two, Samuel and Eli teaches us, teach us that work and busy success, work or business success, does not necessarily equate to making one a successful father. Samuel and Eli were phenomenal men of God, i.e. they were great in their place of business, but they were not necessarily great fathers. The two don't necessarily go hand in glove. David teaches us that personal choices of sin within your life can impact your children. The reason why we see the rebellions with David is because Nathan prophesied that the sword will never leave your house. And that was a direct result of the sin that David, as a father, before he was a father, rather, committed. Sins of the father passed on to the children. That's, that's part of that concept. Now, on the contradiction, or, or on the contrary, we see Noah, the Bible defines him as having walked with God which is what we've been talking about in this section of receiving. Noah walked with God to the point that even when he got into an area of sin, his other son said, no, we got to cover up daddy because he, yeah, he, he, he's drinking and then this is a problem, but we can't leave him exposed. What is it about this man's character that his son says, no, I'm going to cover my daddy even when he made a mistake? We see a picture of different fathers within the scriptures. And I'm always, I'm attracted to some of the things where, where the, the, the scriptures define these relationships that these fathers had with their children. Well, that's a little bit of my Father's Day message. You understand, I had to get that out of the way. Amen. Praise the Lord. All right, we've been talking about for the last little while here, <clears throat> these five elements of faith, yes? Five elements of faith. Hearing and now we're talking about receiving. Hearing, and now we're talking about receiving. We have said, receiving means to take. It means to lay hold of. It means to claim, that's mine. It means to gain, to get, to obtain, to get back. It means, dare I say, to take possession. I'm taking, that's mine. I take possession of that. When I receive something, I take possession. I t it's personal to me. I take possession of it. Let's start here, if you will, at Psalms. Turn over to Psalms 34. I'm going to show you this. Psalms 34. And I'll be reading a little bit in the King James, a little bit in the Amplified. Psalms 34. To receive this, a lot of the things that I have been commissioned to say this year you're going to have to receive it with your faith. Year of rest, the God of recompense, all of these items you're going to have to receive with your faith, which means you need to take that and say, I received, I'm laying hold of that in the name of Jesus. I believe that the latter part of this year will be better than the beginning part of this year. But you're going to have to lay hold of that with your faith. Look over here at Psalms 34. It begins familiarly at, 
or in a, in a familiar tone as we all have read, having been in church for a little while, it says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praises will continually be in my mouth. My soul makes her boast in the Lord. The humble shall hear thereof and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. I saw the Lord, verse number four, and he heard, now this is what I want you to get hold of. I sought the Lord and he heard my, or, and he heard me and delivered me from all my fears. I sought the Lord and he heard me. I sought the Lord and he heard me. Drop down uh, for the sake of time to verse number eight. Notice what David says by inspiration, I believe, of the Spirit. He says, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Doesn't have goodness. He is good, he says. Blessed is the man that trusteth in him. Trusteth what about him? That he is good. He says, verse number nine, oh, fear the Lord, ye his saints. For there is, notice this, no want to them that fear him. He says, there's no want to them that fear him. Verse 10, notice how this connects. The young lions do lack and suffer hunger, but they that seek the Lord shall not want for any good thing. Now, this is an area where you're going to have to receive this with your faith. He says, there is no want for them that fear him. Do you fear the Lord? Is that, that's a question in the house? <laughs> 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 that, that pause maybe. Maybe we need to re talk about the fear of the Lord. <laughs> mm -hmm. That's why I'm down here. I can look at you. He says, there is no want for them that fear him. He says, young lions do lack. And then he says, and suffer hunger. But they that seek the Lord, those that fear the Lord, they won't want. Those that seek the Lord shall want for no or want for any good thing. Now notice how this says it in the uh, Amplified. <clears throat> Verse 34 says, uh, 34 in verse number, I'm sorry, verse number 11 says it like this. He says, um, Come, you children, listen to me. I will teach you to fear the Lord with an awe-inspired reverence and worship with him, with him obedience. He says, verse number, I'm too far up. Let me back up. Oh, reverently fear the Lord, you saints, believers, holy ones, for to those who fear him, there is no want. Those that fear him, he says, there is no want. Verse number 10, the young lions lack food and grow hungry. But, he says, I want you to show you the contradiction or the, contra the, the different uh, idea that I'm depositing. He says, we understand about young lions, they lack. Young lions, they grow hungry. But they that seek the Lord will lack no, uh, will not lack any good thing. Hold your finger there. Let's flip over, if you will, to uh, uh, Psalms 84, I believe. Psalms 80, no, yeah, 84. Hold your finger. We're going to go back to Psalms 34 in a minute, but Psalms 84. And I want you, yes. Well, we don't we don't throw out the concepts of the Old Testament. We just look at it with the lens from the New Testament. There ain't nothing about fearing God that's changed in the New Testament versus the Old. The reverential. Um, respect we have for God is consistent within the New Testament. That didn't that doesn't change at all. Our righteousness is by Jesus in the New Testament as opposed to the Old Testament being by works solely. But the fear of the Lord is consistent old to new. Now, 84, you got it? 
Look at this. Let's put all this back together. Verse number 11. Let's look at verse number 10. It says, For a day in thy course is better than a thousand. I had rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. I'd rather be a, he says, I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of those that are not reverentially worshiping God. He says, verse number 11, for the Lord is, for the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord will give grace and glory. Notice what he says in verse 11. No good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. No good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. Over here, back here in uh, Psalms 34, he says, O fear the Lord, ye his saints, for there is no want for them that fear him. No good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. No good thing. Those that fear him, they shall be in want. But that they that seek the Lord shall not want for any good thing. I'm seeing a thread. My living right before God is rewarded. I need to be believing God to see his goodness in my life. No good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. And what I am depositing right now is an opportunity or opportunity for you to believe God in this particular area. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Now the question is, am I going to receive it? Let's keep going within the scripture. Notice this. He says, drop down to verse number 15, back in 34. The scripture says, the eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous. The eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous. Lord, do you see me? He says, the eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous. And he says, and the ears and his ears are open unto their cries. I don't have to worry about whether or not God hears me. The eyes of the Lord, yeah, in the Old Testament, definitely in the New Testament, when we've been made the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. He says, the eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous. His ears are open unto their cries. Notice he says, verse number 16, the face of the Lord is against them that do evil to cut them off. Let's drop down to verse number 17 because he talks about the evil. That's not us, right? Verse number 17 says, the righteous cry and the Lord heareth and delivereth them out of all their troubles. So when I'm in the midst of issues, I need to know that when I cry before God, he hears me and he will deliver. Verse number 18, look at this. The Lord is nigh unto them that are of a broken heart and save such as be of a contrite spirit. Watch this verse number 19. Now, he said all these wonderful things about him delivering you, that he hears you, that he sees you, right? That's the contest. He says that no want, uh, that there is no want for them that fear him, that the Lord shall uh, uh the, those that seek the Lord shall want for no good thing, right? Says all of these things. Then he says, all right, let me, let me tell you this, though. You need to understand. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. These same folks that are seen by God and heard by God are still, that doesn't immune you from afflictions. <laughs> you still have everybody got something. Everybody. Everybody. Struggling or dealing with something. Many. Now, it'd be nice if he said there's some afflictions of the righteous, but he said many are the afflictions of the righteous. And, but he says, all right, but let's not stay there. He says, but the Lord delivereth him out of them all. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers them out of them all. Well, how does he do so? The Bible tells us, that the just shall live by faith. You got to believe that you are delivered before you see manifestation of your deliverance. You got to receive the fact that he said that he hears you and that he sees you and that you will be delivered in manifestation before you have manifestation of that which he said. Mark 11 and verse number 23. Let's turn back over there. Mark 11. And verse 
Mark 11, verse 23 says, For verily I say unto you, that whosoever shall say unto this mountain, Be thou removed and cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass, he shall have whatsoever he saith. Now this is an element of faith. Saying. We'll talk about that at a later time. He says, verse 34, Therefore I say unto you, or I say unto you, What things soever ye desire when ye pray, he says, notice, believe. Believe what? That ye receive them. Whatsoever things you desire when you pray, believe that ye receive them. Why can I believe that I'll receive them? Because I'm the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. The eyes of the Lord are always on me and his ears are open towards my prayers. I can believe no good thing will it withhold from them that walk uprightly. So my right living gives me confidence that God will give me the desires of my heart. He says, and whatsoever, and he said, therefore I say unto you, what things soever ye desire, when ye pray, believe. When ye pray, believe that ye receive them and ye shall have them. He's telling us, obviously, ye shall have them means that you don't have them physically yet. Believe you have them or receive that you have it before you have manifestation of it. That's what he's saying. That's what it means to walk by faith. Believe that you have before you see that you have. Believe it. I'll take possession of what my eyes, my senses cannot contact with yet. I receive it as done. I, it's my, I take it. That's mine now. He said, no good thing will he withhold from them to walk uprightly before him. I take that. That's mine. God's going to the goodness of God will be manifested in my life because I'm walking uprightly before him. I'm walking in his purposes and I have my neck out in expectation that he's going to do good in my life. I might not have any of it yet, but I receive it and I take hold of it by with and with my faith. All right. Now. I say all of that because we got to look at, we will examine this a little bit further on next week, why, why some people fail to receive. We said on last Thursday, one of the reasons is because of tiredness, natural and spiritual. On Sunday, we said because of unforgiveness, because verse 25 says, and when you stand praying, forgive. If you have any heart against anybody, that can be a hindrance to you receiving. Struggle to receive when your heart is not right. Number three, we've talked about, and we'll look at this again, is unbelief. The act of the will to purposely believe something different than what God's word says. <clears throat> and then we'll look at this area of a stubborn heart. And then we're going to also look at this area of offense. Now, say all that because let's turn over to Matthew chapter <clears throat> 13. This is where we're going to close for this evening. I have something up here. Matthew chapter 13. Yep. The disciples asked the same question. They said, Lord, how many times we get to forgive people that wronged us? Seven times? They thought that was a nice number. Jesus said, no, 70 times 70. Or in other words, an infinite amount of times. Have a heart of forgiveness, even when people have done you wrong. He, Jesus even talks about that as well. Further, where he talks about, you know, sinners, you know, forgive people that come and apologize, essentially. I mean, they can do that. What makes you different from them? What makes you different is when you forgive people that have wronged you, might not want to apologize, might never apologize, but you let it go in your own heart. wrong with confronting someone in regards to <clears throat> areas where they have wronged you 
but that doesn't preclude your uh, responsibility or obligation to still forgive them. That's great. Well, <clears throat> since we are there, back over in Mark, let's read the entirety of the verse, shall we? Let me read this out of the Amplified Bible so that we can, you know, take some of the ambiguity out of it, amen? Mark chapter 11 and verse number 25. Mark 11 and verse 25. Let's take a look at that. Uh, the Amplified Version of the Bible. <clears throat> Scripture says, uh, uh, verse 24 of the Amplified says, For this reason I'm telling you whatsoever things you ask for in prayer in accordance with God's will, believe with confident trust <clears throat> that you received them and they will be given to you. Most of us are excited about that part. But he says, but listen, while you're down there praying, though, and believing that you've received, the Amplified says, whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him. If you. Now, notice he doesn't say, if us, they. He said, if you, why are you praying? Have anything against anyone, forgive them. The Amplified is explicit. It says, Drop the issue, let it go. Now, that'd be one thing if there was a period there. There is not. He says, drop the issue and let it go. And he says, all right, so that your father who is in heaven will also forgive you your transgressions and wrongdoings against him and others. So I decide to be legalistic with somebody, God says, okay, I'm going to have to be legalistic with you. Because <laughs> we talked about this on Sunday. You determine the standard of judgment that you will receive. He says, let me give you a clue here. You need to let the issue go. But in the event that you say, no, 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 God says, okay, all right, let me get this book out of stuff you've done. All right, I see on the 5th you did this, on the 8th you did that, on the 9th you did this, and uh, so what say you about these things? You're like, wait, wait, wait now, Lord, what about the grace and mercy? He said, well, no, no, no. If you can't forgive, then I can't forgive. You forgive, then I'll forgive, because you determine the level of judgment that happens in your life. Don't oh, shout me down now. All right. Now, I determine, not God, I determine the judgment. I will start this tonight and we'll pick up with this on next Thursday. Matthew chapter 13 talks about the parable of the sower. Jesus says, <clears throat> let's just read the whole parable and then we'll just break this out as we go. Uh, probably won't finish tonight, but it's all right. Matthew chapter number 13 talks about the parable of the sower, and Mark chapter 4 covers the exact same parable uh, as well. But let's read this in Matthew tonight. Verse number 1 says, The same day Jesus went out of the house and sat by the sea side, a great multitude was gathered together unto him. So he went out into a ship and he sat and the whole multitude stood on the shore. So he, he gets out, you know, you can think of it being like a low area and so the multitude is gathering. So he gets on the boat and he pushes out a little bit so that they all can see him and now he's, he's ministering to them. And he saw, verse number three, many things, he, he, he spake many things unto them in parable saying, verse, he says, behold, a sower went forth to sow. Verse four, and when he sowed, some seed fell by the wayside, and some fowls came and devoured them up. Verse 5, some fell upon a stony place where there was, much, where there was not much earth. And forthwith they sprang up because they had no deepness of earth. Verse number 6, 
And when the sun was up, they were scorched, and because they had no roots, they withered away. So he said, the sower sows the word. He's casting out this seed. Seed going everywhere. You know, back in the day, I was, I was looking from my, my office at some heavy equipment as some folks were uh, pulling up the wheat from the ground. And it was occurred to me that how the wheat went down into the field, now we use machines to plant and all these kind of things. Well, back in this day, in order for them to get the wheat in the ground, they would go out and they would till the ground and they literally would be tossing it. And so Jesus is giving this analogy. He said, you would think of this seed that's going out, it's the sower, is how he's just sowing seeds, sowing seeds so that the wheat will come up. Some of the seeds that are thrown, they are thrown, and some of them go this way, some of them go that way. One of the areas where they go, some of them go by the wayside. Some of them go in this area where there's more rock in this area. And he says, because of the fact the earth is not deep, yeah, there was some that came up, but when the sun came out, it scorched them because they didn't have deep roots. Verse 7, and some fell on thorns, and the thorns sprang up and choked them. So some of that seed that the man is throwing out, because that seed is going nowhere, some of it was sown in areas that were thorny. And because the thorns had more influence than that seed, it choked that seed life out of it, right? But others fell on good ground and brought forth fruit. Some a hundredfold, some 60, and some 30. Who, verse 9, who has ears to hear, let him hear. Verse 10, and the disciples came and said to him, why speak thou unto them in parables? What are you telling these stories for Jesus? He says, verse number 11, and he answered and said unto him, because it is given unto you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it is not given. And this is the case with believers today. It's given unto you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God. Dare I say, it's given to you to know the mysteries of life. This is the reason why when we are at funerals, I get grieved when I see Christians crying for Christians like they sent us. When you are a believer, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And particularly if you're talking about mama who lived and fulfilled the days that God gave her, fulfilled her purpose, did everything, passed a baton to the next generation, and why are you about to cry and bawl like you don't know where she's at? Something is wrong. It's given to you that are born again to know the mysteries. We know where she is. All right. It says verse number 12. For whosoever has to him shall be given, and he, uh, and he shall have more abundance. But whosoever hath not from him shall be taken away even that he has. He says, to you that have, more will be given. So I'm the steward of this truth, of the mysteries of the kingdom of God. If you have, more will be given. But he says, but without, but whoever you ain't got this at all, he says, even what you got will be taken away from you. He says, therefore, verse 13, I, he says, therefore, speak I to them in parables, because they seeing see not, and hearing they hear not. Neither do they understand. So he's talking about the prophecy about this time that Isaiah, or Isaiah talks about that, that they would hear everything, but they wouldn't be able to perceive it. They would see Messiah, and they still wouldn't perceive the fact that Jesus is who they've been waiting on all this time. So he talks about the kingdom of heaven in parables. Now, so the disciples go on, they say, all right, Lord, we get all that. That's real good and everything. Can you break this down to us? We want to understand this parable. Let's look at this first section, and this is where we'll close. Verse 18. He says, hear ye, therefore, the parable of the sower. Let me break this down to you. He says, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom, notice he says, and understandeth it not, then cometh the wicked one and catches away that which was sown in his heart, that is he which received seed by the wayside. Now, as Jesus begins to explain this parable, it's important that we understand this. 
there is no difference in the seed. The seed is not the problem. The sower sowed the word. The Bible says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. The seed is incorruptible seed. The seed is not your issue. The ground was the problem. He says, when anyone heareth the word of the kingdom and understandeth it not. He says, then cometh the wicked one and catcheth away that which was sown in his heart. Why is he able to do that? Because of the lack of understanding. Mark says it like this. And, and these are they by the wayside. Where the word, Mark chapter 4 and verse 15 says, where the word was sown. But when they have heard, Satan cometh immediately and taketh away the word that was sown in their heart. Immediately. Well, how in the world can Satan come immediately to take the word away? Because you don't understand it. Man, this is what it looks like in a lot of churches. Man of God's preaching, but you don't understand nothing he's saying. You're right. And some preachers do enjoy, you know, people looking at them saying, oh, one of the great profound men and women of God. Yeah, I get all that. But if the people are not receiving, that means the devil can show up immediately to take the word that's been sown. Which is part of the reason why we don't rush through stuff. And I am not then, Lord said, go back over that again because we got to keep sowing, keep sowing, keep sowing until you stop regurgitating it back. Amen. Some Sundays, I can, oh, I can feel it coming back. <laughs> so we go over it again. Faith comes by hearing. But you receiving it, taking it, taking possession of it is connected directly to what you understand. Proverbs 4 verse 7 says, wisdom is the principal thing, therefore get wisdom. But he says, and with all thy getting, get understanding. The enemy cannot take the word you understand. Like I say, it's given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God. It's given unto you. But we got to change our default system. That's one of the things that God keeps saying in this church. We got to change our default. Find an issue. Go what you understand about the word of God, not what you used to do. Yes. Okay, we'll come back to you. <laughs> We're talking about what now? Who? No, that's not what I said. <laughs> what I was saying, well, specifically, we're talking about funerals. I'm talking about. <clears throat> having a misunderstanding of where the person that died in Christ is. Now, understand this. There's a balance to that. Yes, you will physically miss them. You will because they're gone. They're not in your presence anymore. But the Bible teaches us that when a believer dies, they are no longer in your present. But they're in your past and your memories. But the Bible says they're also in your future, that you'll be reunited in the future. Same thing with those that die in Christ. Same, same, same thing. And we even looked at uh, when we started today uh, in Psalms 34, where the Bible talks about that God is near to those that have a contrite or broken heart. So his presence is always there to help and heal you. One of the issues that people have in regards to that is letting the spirit of grief get on them and they reject the word of the Lord to be able to be healed in that area. And one of the manifestations of that is when they get stalled. When what God wants to do, particularly, like I said, we're talking about a believer, is to, to get. He hugs you, hugs your emotions, but he gives you the ability to move forward, understanding that, yes, mama is no longer in your present, but she's in your memories, but she's also in your future because she died in Christ. And it still goes back to a question of, do you believe that? And one of the things I discovered at funerals is a lot of folk don't. And one of the reasons why they don't is because we only talk about death at a funeral. And so faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. The only time we crack open, oh, death, where is thy sting? Oh, grave, where is thy victory? Is at the funeral. 
And you're in the height of emotions at that point. And a lot of people are not in the position to receive. That depends on the church. If the church has already gotten people to the position where they are used to receiving, even at a funeral, they'll open themselves to receive from God at the funeral. I've seen the healing anointing operate at a funeral heavy to start healing folks' heart for those that are receptive to take possession. When, this, when the healing anointing comes in and, and the Spirit of God is moving, if folks are like, well, I'm going to take hold of it. I'm not going to stay in this grief no more. I'm going to receive it right now. I'm taking possession of it. Then God begin to deal with them. But some that haven't been taught that, that spirit of grief comes in. They say, let the spirit of grief sit here with me and not know how to receive the spirit of healing. This is one of the reasons, since we are talking this way, this is one of the reasons why I particularly don't like when the spirit of God has moved in a service. We've already closed up the body up, <laughs> the casket is closed up, God's healed you up, that the grave, <laughs> the mortician, rolls the body back out to the back, opens it up and says, no, you ain't getting out of here healed. <laughs> I, I absolutely, I hate that. Because one of the things that a funeral does, like I said, for those that die in Christ, is it's an opportunity for you to celebrate their life, but it's an opportunity for the Holy Spirit to start healing your heart and dealing with your emotions. And it does, though, take a minister and ministry gifts that do know how to flow with the Holy Ghost in that area. And some of them get into areas of ruts of religion or, oh, I got a big crowd now. I'm going to, I'm going to preach my sermon. <laughs> They, they don't care anything about ministering to the hearts of the people. The Holy Spirit is always present to heal the brokenhearted. We will pick up here for the sake of time on next Thursday. Amen. All right. Father, in the authority of the name of Jesus, God, we bless you for this opportunity to have gotten into your word tonight. Lord, we thank you, Lord, that we believe that we are good ground. We are those that will receive the word of the Lord. We take possession of it, God. We're not going to be hearers, but we're going to be doers of your word. And so, Lord, we thank you and we give you praise for everything that you have done on this evening. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Everyone did say, Amen.